Lord, we acknowledge that to you right now, that we need you to do a work in us. I need you to do a work in my heart, in my soul. I need your Holy Spirit to descend upon this church right now. But we can't receive any of this without you opening it up to us and getting it into us, letting it be that transformative thing that it is when your word does a miraculous work. And we receive it and we hear it and we understand it. And it results in a newfound affection for you and your glory. And then we walk out of this place and we're changed. And we don't want things to be the same. We want to understand life differently in light of your word. So Lord, I pray that you would do that for us this morning because only you can. So we come before you in humility, pleading with you to open up our minds and our hearts to this word. We pray, and we all said together, amen. Go ahead, you can roll the tape. You know, and the Bible is hard to understand sometimes, isn't it? I mean, sometimes we open it and we go through different books and we get into different chapters and verses, and it's hard to understand. One of the great things about the Psalms is that it sort of taps into the language and the emotions that are common to us. We can relate to what it is that these writers are writing. There's 10 different authors when we open up the Psalms that we go through as we go through them from start to finish. And really, they really tap into something about what it is to live a life um, before the throne of God, like we just sang. And so when we talk about... Um, Christ in the Psalms, really what our aim is as we go through this series over the next couple of months, and then it'll end, and then we're going to be going into First Peter uh, in the fall, is we really want to see what kind, of, what kind of stuff, if I can use the most basic of words here, what kind of stuff God was doing in the hearts of the men that were opening up their lives and pouring out their hearts to God. Because there wasn't anything unusual about what they were going through as opposed to what we go through now. Like, things haven't changed that much. Like, we think problems are new and unique to us, and certainly our culture feeds in to different issues and problems that we might be dealing with. But certainly, when it comes to, like, what's going on internally and what's going on with our hearts, it's all the same. It doesn't really change. So... Um, What we're able to do as we go through these psalms is really relate to that and then see how these guys are writing something that we can always point to Christ as having experienced and then done, completed, and finished for us. So what it does is it takes everything we feel, and it takes the muck and the mess of life, and it relates it to God's purposes through us by sending his son. Because There's no other way we need to be relating any of this stuff if it doesn't first apply to Christ and then come back to us. Amen? That's our heart and that's our hope. Um, And we know hope because really for us, we're, we're acquainted with heartbreak, aren't we? We know hope by heartbreak. We know what it is to feel joy because there were those moments when we weren't joyful. There were those moments when we were suffering There were those moments in our lives when we experienced a drought. I mean, so over the last week, all I've been hearing about is the drought is now 
over. The Cavs have won. Right? The dra- no, don't, no, we are not clapping for the Cavs in church. Do not do that. I will preach a 10-week series on total depravity if you guys start laughing on that. But it was a drought, wasn't it? And you know what's funny is I hear, well, this is what I've been hearing. By the way, if you need to know anything about uh, Cleveland basketball, ask me. Because I feel like I'm fully, uh, I'm, I'm fully like, aware and I'm fully educated about everything that's happened since 1964. I got it all up here now. But, um, but what's interesting is that I've heard more, this is what I've heard more from people that have been talking incessantly to me about it over the past five, six, seven days, is that everybody almost seems a little more relieved. There's more relief than there is rejoicing. I mean, like, you know, that parade with the 200 million people, and it just seems like the, it seems like the heart behind it is that, ah, they finally won. It's almost like they're just, everybody's like wiping their forehead rather than just shouting it out. We're just, we're glad because it just seemed like all was, or had been lost for so long, and now we've experienced the ability to rejoice because our team has been victorious. The drought is over. And the reason why we know it's so good is because it has been so bad, right? That's part of it. And really, David is writing Psalm 30 in that sort of place. So go ahead and grab your Bibles. Turn to Psalm 30. We're going to hit the first half of it this week and the second half next week. And really what we're going to learn, the big idea is just that, is that our weeping gives way to our joy and that God resolutely designs it that way. And it's peculiar. It's interesting what God allows us to go through. And we're going to see how David, there's a pattern and a model to how David goes through the things that have really been shaping his heart in a very dark time and how he comes out the other end with a greater understanding of who God is and God's grace and his God, God's mercy in his life. So let's pick up Psalm 30. Verse 1 says, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you've healed me. O Lord, you've brought me brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Now, I added the now, sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And that's where we're going to stop for this week. Now, I know that most of you, when you woke up this morning and you prayed and you were thinking about the service, I don't think most of you used the word extol, right, when you came before the Lord. I didn't. I didn't say, so God, by the way, I extol you this morning. I I didn't do that. But the word extol, what it means is it means to rise. It means to raise something. It means to bring something up. It also means to be lofty. It means to be loud, kind of like what we were just doing with these songs. I mean, all of us were singing a little bit louder than we would have had we been standing in line at Chipotle, right, on Friday night. Like we were singing loud. We were singing lofty. Um, David is literally saying at the beginning of this song, he's saying, Lord, I'm going to praise you loudly and rigorously. 
I'm going to throw myself into it. I'm going to open my mouth. I'm going to express myself the way I would if, you know, I don't know, my favorite team just won a championship after 52 years. That's what I'm going to do. Because when all was lost, you have drawn me up, he says. You have drawn me up. Literally what he means by that is you have literally almost like pulled me up like the way like you would pull up a bucket out of a well. You have pulled me up from drowning. You have delivered me from Sheol. You've delivered me from a watery grave, is what David's saying. You're just a little, just a little light sing song here in the morning for David, right? You've delivered me from a watery grave. You've spared my life, is what he's saying. Now, my wife has been gone for almost a week visiting her family. Um, I forgot to water the plant hanging on our porch that she asked me to water. And uh, it's dead. (laughs) Please do not tell her. I beg you. So here's me, right? This is yesterday. Even though it died, Big R here fills up the, the, the thing and starts watering it, hoping that something's going to happen. Came back a couple hours later, worse. Looks worse, right? I I can't make this, cannot make this hanging plant come back to life. I'm going to have to lie, go to Home Depot, buy something new, put it in there, keep it water for the next few days before she gets home. But since you guys aren't going to mention anything, it's going to work. It will work. God comes to us, okay, and says, I can make it all come back to life. That's what God does. That's what David's leading us into understanding is that God comes and says, I can make it come back to life. I can bring you back to life. And he does. Because every forgiven person, if you are a forgiven person, you are a personal testimony to the magnitude of the miraculous work Jesus does raising dead people to life like he did his own son. When all was lost... Jesus had to reach down and save a completely unsalvageable person. Completely unsalvageable person. Like when you wreck a car, right? You know, sometimes you get into a car accident. I remember when Jess Critcher got into a car accident, um, and the insurance company files a report, and they designate the car totaled. It's totaled. There's no help. It's not good. We can't just get a hammer and bang out the front fender, then you're off. We don't get to do that anymore. It's totaled. It means it's unfixable. That's the person that you were before Christ drew you up. Like what David's talking about. Totally unfixable. Totally unfixable, unsalvageable. And some of us, me, we struggle. We struggle with that image of ourselves. We, we, don't, we don't see, like what David's laying out for us here, we don't see sort of the staggering wonder that it is that we've been rescued from the kingdom of darkness, transferred to the kingdom of light, understanding that in reality, we were simply people who were lifeless shells of humans. We were. Upon birth, we were immediately thrust into a state of decay and disrepair. That's the reality of who we were before God. I mean, instead, we, we, don't, we don't go that deep. 
We don't start where David just started. It's peculiar that he would start where he started right there, isn't it? But we don't tend to go that deep. We don't like going that deep, right? We don't like thinking of God having done something that stupendous, that miraculous, do we? We kind of look around and we think, you know, I don't know, my life, you know, it's okay. It's like a B minus, C plus, B minus, you know, uh, God, you know, he's a decent fellow and don't get me wrong. I, I appreciate that eternal life part and everything. That's, that's good. And I'm going to work with that. But you know, what I really wish is that I really wish I had some more money. I, I really wish I, I, I had more vacation time. I really wish I had a better looking spouse. I mean, I don't wish that, but you know, I'm saying the rest of you, like, you know, I really wish I had more money. Did I already say that one? Did I say the one about wishing we had more money? Yeah. Before Christ claims ownership of our souls, what David is pointing out to us, what he's reminding of us, is that the forwarding address for our souls is Sheol. It's a watery grave. Everything's transferred to that grave because that's where we are. Isn't that crazy? Like, just think about that. If I, if I can ever just, oh God, if I can ever just pause in a sermon, but I'm supposed to just keep going. I just want to pause for one second because I want to feel this. I mean, you hear the craziness of that statement that he makes right there in, in verse 3. Oh, Lord, you've brought my soul from a watery grave from hell. You restored me to life from among those who go down in the pit. Like I'm in the company of people who are in the grave effectively. You brought me out of that. It's crazy to think about that. It's crazy to think that all of our fates were sealed upon birth without Christ. And you know what's crazy about it too? If I can just get, you know, real talk with you guys. It's crazy unpopular to even say what I'm saying right now. It's crazy unpopular to use this kind of language even here. I mean, even here there's something in me that hesitates because I'm afraid somebody would be offended that, you know, the, the right reverend man of the cloth, Martin here, um, started talking about souls residing in hell. And I just kind of cringe at that. I'm afraid of that. I believe it's true, but I'm afraid somebody out there is going to go, oh my gosh, the guy going on about hell again. I care. I care too much about that. What's interesting about David as he opens up this song is that he's recounting the depths of what God initially did to him, which was bring him up and out of the watery pit, out of the watery grave. Do you recount those things? Is that a regular practice for you? Do you just get down to it? Do you bottom line it? All right, God, I got a lot of things I'm going to say to you, but let me start at the beginning when it was that you actually revived a dead person from the grave. Do you ever consider that? Do you ever consider the, the former and the current state of your soul? Maybe that truth has lost sort of its miraculous luster for you. Because I look at myself and I think, when did that cease being just sort of a, like a, just a million firework explosions of hope and happiness spilling from my heart. 
I've been saved, pulled out of the grave. God has removed death as my only option. Like David, he's healed me from the eternal, physical, and spiritual consequences of my sin. David recounts that. He starts by recounting the very thing that God did to bring him to God. And then next we see this. This is what's interesting. We look at the pattern that's happening here. David worships. Look what he does. When we look at verse 4, he says, Sing praises to the Lord, O you saints, and give thanks to his holy name. Here's the thing about the people of God. The people of God have a reason to sing. Like we gather here on Sunday morning and we get on the guitar and we do our thing. It's because we have a reason to sing. We've been given our life back. We've literally been given our life back. And we become a holy people that now have words to sing in gratefulness and gratitude and in joy to our holy God. And my friend uh, Scott Burns, they were on their way to Florida. And uh, man, he, they just bought this brand new van and he was, something felt weird, you know, on the right-hand side of it. You know, one of the tires was feeling all squirrely. So, you know, midway through the trip, always like what you want to do, pull off to a small town, take it to a garage, you know. The guy looks at it and he said, man, he said, this tire is like done. Like it's literally seconds away from like shredding all over the highway and you're going to lose control and all your kids, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And I remember Scott just saying like, oh man, like I literally, like he charged me like four times as much as like what a normal guy would have charged me. But I was so grateful. I was like, how can I think? Let me just give you more money. You know, he's just like throwing money at him. He was just so grateful because the warning signs, he was able to heed them because somebody warned him. And he was so thankful for the mechanic who saved him from his tire shredding. It was an inevitability. It was going to happen. The only response he had was, I just want to give you everything I have and my thankfulness and my money and my gratefulness. And uh, now I'm broke. We're just going to have to go back home. But, you know, the trip would have been great. But, I mean, he just, but it's better to have his life than it was to make it to his destination. You know what worship is? The worship is this. Worship is opening your eyes to everything around you and saying, it's you, God. That's what we're doing on a Sunday morning. We're taking everything into consideration and we're saying, it's all you. It's all you, God. So David recounts where he was. And then he worships. He has a response to that. He has a response to that recounting. And then we get to the end here in verse 5, and he reflects. So he recounts, he worships, and he does this reflection. He says this, For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. He says this amazing line, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. What David's doing here is he's understanding that God is permitting things in his life. He's permitting times of weeping to prepare him. So he permits to prepare. He permits times of weeping, weeping to prepare us for joy. He designs a drought in our life before he brings the rain back into our lives. 
And he uses that as a path to joy. And David is, David is visibly experiencing that right here. So what does it mean, though, when David says God's anger is but for a moment? What does that mean? God's anger is for a moment. I mean, is that like saying, like, you know, don't worry, the lion's going to come in and attack, but he's only going to, like, spend, like, 10 seconds on you. So it's cool. Just keep, keep cool. Remain calm. Is that what he's saying? God's anger remains for a moment. What, what does he mean by that line? What well, means that we have moments when we feel like God's presence in our life is absent. We have moments where we feel like God's presence in our life has been removed. And that's what David's, that's what David's experiencing right now is one of those moments. Listen to how God describes it in Isaiah 54. Listen to what he says, okay? Again, Isaiah was a prophet to the nation of Israel. This is God talking to Isaiah, telling the people this. For a brief moment, I deserted you, but with great compassion, I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment, I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Did you you catch the end part with that? Did you hear what I just said? Says the Lord, your redeemer. It didn't say, says the Lord, the guy that's just, you know, kind of in your corner for the next few days. Maybe, maybe not. I mean, it very clearly states who the Lord was to his people. He was their redeemer. And yet he just laid out a period in their lives of what they were going to experience that he was allowing them to experience, right? Is it peculiar to you that God operates in this way? I mean, do you have a hard time understanding this kind of language? For a moment I deserted you, in overflowing anger, for a moment I hid my face. I mean, you think like, I thought God never leaves or forsakes us. It sounds like now what you're saying is, in fact, he turns his back on us and he leaves us hanging sometimes. That's what that sounds like. Well, no, actually, what this means is that he allows us to experience momentary affliction as the means to reintroduce the joy of himself back into our lives. And there's a reason why he does that. There's a very specific reason why he does that. You know, this is going to be a little controversial, but I'm just going to say it. Um, my parents, like, spanked us when, when we were kids. I know it's, super, it's not super popular today, but my parents spanked us. Um, they did not spare the rod on, on their children. Um, they did not abuse us. They simply laid an appropriately placed swat on our behinds when we were living in disobedience and chasing after the desire of our wicked hearts rather than theirs. That's what they did. That's what mom and pops used to do. Now, I'm going to be honest, all right? In the moment of my appropriately placed SWAT, I was not thinking back to all the good times me and the old guy had shared over the years, right? I wasn't thinking about all the great things he taught me, you know, the bicycle he just bought me for my birthday. And none of that was going through my mind. I thought, he's um, angry right now because I disobeyed. All right? But when it was over, 
and the tears were just, you know, flowing like mud down my face, dad would come back in, he'd come over, he'd hug me, kiss me, tell me he loved me. And it was at that moment that I knew I was still in his favor. I mean, I was still a son, right? I can't stop being that. I mean, I, I, ne- I never wasn't out, out, of his, out of his ultimate favor in the sense that I was his kid and that never changes. But he had to take appropriate action because of the state of my heart. And we see that same loving kindness when we think about our Heavenly Father and what he does to us, with us, and for us. And we need to reflect on that. We need to reflect deeply on those moments when God allows trials and testings and discipline to sting us and, quite frankly, to overwhelm us. And we also need to remember that they are momentary. Weeping may tarry for the night. It might extend. It might last. It might be prolonged for the night. But joy comes in the morning. And when he says joy here, you know what's interesting about what this word joy means? Is it means a shrill sound, right? It means a shrill sound, like a proclamation, like, the, like a cry, right? And so when we think about weeping, what do we think about? Well, we think about like kind of, kind of pouring out. If somebody walks in the room and we're weeping, they're going to be able to hear us. They're going to be able to see us. It's going to be a spectacle. And then he, re- he turns it and he says, but joy comes with the morning. So the response to our weeping, what he's describing here is something that comes out of us. It's like actually an emotion. It's a sound. It's a cry. It's a proclamation. It's a cry like our cry through the night, but different. Because there's something different in it. And there's something different that's coming through it. Some of us are so bad at weeping, aren't we? We're so bad at weeping. Some of us just wallow in it. Some of us weep and we have reason to weep. But we wallow in our weeping. And we don't allow it to come to an end at the end of the night and the season that God has brought us through. So we wallow in our weeping. Some of us Some of us just try to rush through it. Some of us just want to rush through it. Like, I'm weeping. Okay, okay, okay. I need to buck it up. I need to get through this. I need to get back to what's really going on, to who I really am. And what, what God is trying to tell us through David here is that there's a place for it. There's a place for our weeping. There's a place for our weeping so that he can reintroduce joy. Joy in the morning. You know what that explains to us? It explains the weeping that tarries through the night. What are stories of redemption but nights of weeping followed by joyful restoration? These stories that we hear about people that have been through these horrendous things, the stories that you have about what you've been through. So what we learn here is that the Christian interprets weeping differently. We see it differently, don't we? We don't see it as the world Seize it. If weeping leads to joy, then we start to understand the place that weeping has in our life. We start to understand the place that lamenting and grieving has. And when we're in it, we're not people who are grieving without hope. 
So our grieving has hope, and what our hope has is depth. And you know what our hope does? It encourages us and it becomes useful to others. Do you ever think about that? That your weeping for the night is something that's going to be useful in the lives of your church family? Well, why do you think it's going to be useful, Ronnie? Because David was weeping through the night and it's useful to us right now. And this was thousands of years ago. It's useful to others. It sees God. It reorients our hearts to see God as purposeful instead of going all luck and karma. Like we kind of fall back to. Like if, I, if I sit down with any of you guys, I'm going to say, do you believe in karma? And you say, absolutely not, Ronnie. Wrong. Man, we all got that. We all got part of that. We've grown up with that. We've grown up in believing that it's luck and that it's karma and that this thing just happened to me and I'm in a little bit of a down season, you know. It's just what's going on right now. We don't see it as being something that God has purposefully planned for our lives. And you know what that is? That's horrible theology. But we default to that. We tend to default to that. But do you see how David set this up? Do you see how he got to this place? Do you see how he got to this place? Where he's able to recount what God had saved him from, that he worships God, and then now he's able to understand and have perspective about what God is doing right now. What's happening with David's weeping is that it has worth. David's weeping has worth. In other words, if your residency, like David's, is now in heaven, ultimately, it means the clock is ticking on all the weeping that you will ever have in this world. And the way that we're going to know joy, actually, is because of our weeping. Because rain is so much more welcomed after a drought. I think we're having a drought right now. There's farmers out there that are going to be really stoked out of their minds when that rain comes, right? The reason why the championship was so sweet wasn't because we Chicago bulled it and won it the last like five years in a row. Seriously, now you guys even going to care about that. The reason why it was so sweet is because it hadn't happened since like 1823. That's why it's so sweet. And so what we see here as we close, God purposes this time of weeping and we don't want to waste it and we know we're not alone in it. You know why? Because God is also the God of our weeping. God is the God of our sleepless nights. God is the God of your brokenness and your broken moments. He's the God of those things. He is the God of our anxiety and our anxious hearts and all just the crap that is going on in our lives. He is the God of all those things. He's allowing and purposing you to go through something so that you can come out the other end of something and know more about him, his character, his joy, his grace, his mercy. If God doesn't ever stop being God, it means morning comes after every night, doesn't it? And joy comes after every sorrow. And we can depend on God to keep that true. And we know it'll be true because we know about Christ's weeping, don't we? That's what makes it true. Our tears should remind us of the greater tears that Jesus shed 
on the night before the cross, right? God's momentary anger should remind us of the wrath that he poured out on Jesus so that his favor could rest on us for all eternity. For the Christian, for you, brothers and sisters, for me, greater tears have been shed, right? Greater suffering has been endured by Christ. And that means the pain left for us can be endured because it leads to the same painless eternity where Christ is. Let's finish by going to 2 Corinthians 4. Second Corinthians 4. This is Paul writing. I think there's something that we default to in our lives, which is surprise. Christians battle with the element of surprise. We're surprised in our lives when things don't go well. We're surprised when that, those nights of weeping come upon us, they descend upon us. For some reason, it surprises us. We're shocked by it. Our expectations have not been met. Our expectations have actually been dashed. And when those things, when those types of nights of weeping come upon us, we're surprised by it. We're like taken. We're taken by it. Listen to what Paul says, talking about who we are and what we can expect from the Christian life. He says, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. So do you hear what he says there? Like he's not saying, so for some of you whose outer self is wasting away. He says, for our outer self is wasting away. It's all wasting away. Praise God. Because our inner self is being renewed day by day. Then he says one of the most remarkable and encouraging and hopeful lines in all of Scripture, right here, 17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Let's understand what God is doing in our weeping. Let's follow David's pattern here of recounting, of worshiping, of reflecting. Let me ask you this about David, okay? Do you think this was natural for David? Do you think the things David experienced were natural for him? Do you think the weeping that David was experiencing was something that we just go, you know, all those old guys just cried a lot? Was he approaching it? Was it bearing down on him the same way that it bears down on us? Was that night of weeping just as long as it feels to us? Yeah, it was. Maybe longer? If God has put an end to your death, is he not good enough to put an end to to your crying. He is, and he does. And in that, we can sing 
rigorously to him in gratefulness and in joy. Let's pray. Lord, it's a strange thing for us as your people to come before you and thank you that you allow us to go through weeping, but we're going to do that right now. We're going to do it because we understand that it's purposeful and that you as the good God who allows us to weep is also bringing us to a greater joy, a greater weight of the glory that we know through Jesus Christ because of what you are taking us and preparing us through. We can have so much hope because we have a joy waiting for us. And we see that when we look at Christ who endured the cross because of the joy that was set before him, the joy that was waiting for him. It's our same joy. Lord, give us eyes to see that. Give us hearts to receive that as we are going through those painfully long nights of weeping with the understanding that you are there. And nothing is happening that is beyond the goodness and and graciousness and control of your hands and heart in our lives. Lord, let this great truth change us as we reflect on it, as we can rejoice together that the God who allows us to weep also has an everlasting joy prepared. Thanks for this great truth, Lord, and we pray these things in your name and all God's people said. Amen. Hey, let's stand.